Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a class from our 2022 Elul Learning Series. Today, we are going to talk about the technicalities of correcting at the Torah. And I'm going to impart to you all sorts of interesting wisdoms about how one participates either from their seat, since I know for certain Tybal is not going to be gathering anytime soon in person here, and also ways that we can participate as Gabaim at the Torah in the least intrusive way with the most adherence to the tradition, because there is a value tension meaning competing values between the dignity of the Torah reader and the mandate for the Torah reader to chant correctly. There is a, a, there's a tension between those two things, between wanting to preserve the dignity of the reader, not to throw them off so much that it's an upsetting experience, particularly if it's a child, but it's not, that doesn't only go for uh, teens or, or kids at the Torah. And we really do need per our shared um, kind of social contract about this, right? The breed that we have as a community, we've agreed that we're going to have our Torah readers read correctly. One of the things that I'd say as a hashgaha, as an outlook at the beginning, is that it's really important for our young readers, um, meaning new to Torah reading, you could be young at heart, it's really important for them to be told two things. One is, that there are the same number of Gabaim at the Torah when a master Torah reader, I don't even count myself among them, but let's just say a rabbi in the cantor or Rick Muller reading at the Torah, same number of Gabaim, one, two, as we have in the experience of a bar and bat mitzvah at the Bima. Meaning, yeah, exactly. Oh, Rick Muller at the Torah. Yeah, Tybal's Jadmas. So it's important for them to understand that we're not spotting them with 10 different people at the Torah. We're spotting them with the same number of people at the Torah as when an expert reader reads. What I tell them that means is we assume, and this is the second principle I want to tell them, we assume that the reader will make mistakes. If we didn't, we wouldn't put two Gabaim up there. But we understand that this is not a Broadway show. And again, while there's a value between, here's another value tension between helping as many people get to practice the skill and frankly, the joy of being up at the Torah and chanting and also having someone read in a way that isn't burdensome to the community, either so incorrect, so slowly, so incomprehensible in some way. We can't let just any person come up to the Torah to chant unprepared, but we do want to make it so that everybody who comes to the Torah understands that when they're there up at the Torah, we expect mistakes. Otherwise, again, we wouldn't have two Gabaim also up there when really um, practiced readers were getting up to read. We're committed to, to the notion of democracy when it comes to how many mistakes we expect someone to make in a good way. We hope that they're actually reading from the scroll, actually reading those words from the scroll, which is going to definitely cause some... Mm, and also to convey to them that we expect that nothing's going to go perfectly. It's not a rehearsed Broadway show. And we don't rate the experience of the service but based on how many mistakes are made or not. We rate it based on a dignified 
set of corrections that are offered quietly to the person. If, if all mistakes are corrected, I would name that that's as good as, if not better than a Torah reader who comes up there and appears not to need any Gabaud at all. Because then we are communally engaged in the process. So one thing I just wanted to convey, I know Rick appreciates this as a teacher of young students, like in age at the Torah, that there's a, there's a need to lower the expectations of one's own self coming to the Torah without treating it with any less import. It's just about how rehearsed is rehearsed for the Torah. So that's a, that's a really big piece of outlook, right? We don't want people to feel like they're like they, uh, they ruined the congregation's morning by making some mistakes. Quite the opposite, actually. When they make mistakes and people correct them at the Torah a few times, again, like a, a reasonable number of times, it shows that we're all engaged in this project together. So that's an important piece of outlook. Anything that anyone wanted to either ask or add to that? Um, since there's only three of us. <laughs> um, sure. So I always tell the kids that it's a team effort, that... Uh, it's not them against the congregation. It's it's we're all trying to help, and um, that they uh, they shouldn't go back and do words over again. That just keep rolling. But um, I'm there just to. Uh, it's like putting grease on the train tracks in front of the mm-hmm. locomotive, right? I'm just, I'm just keeping you going. There's a better metaphor, but um, yeah. we're all on the same side, and. Yeah. Um, um, it, and it can come across in the voice. Um, there's a congregation that I won't name where the the gabayim are, are a little bit, just a little bit harsh, a, li- a little bit strict in their. It's it's like this. It's daber. It's not daber. It, 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 you know, it's like you know, it's yeah. like. But I just saw it once, and I've heard about it just a little bit. But. Uh, Every every other place I've ever been to, it's just a welcoming thing, and they um, they just want the kid or the Uncle Fred from Chicago. They just want him to just keep going, and exactly. um, yeah. So um, it's it, it's a team effort, and um, uh, I, I learned. Uh, I'll stop in a second. Uh, in the summer, they had us read this book about adolescence mm-hmm. for the day school staff, and the best line was. You don't have to be perfect, just be brave. You know, just be brave. You don't have to be I perfect. And I have a book here that I was going to give to a student who I heard that he was into golf, and it's golf is not a game of perfect. It's the oh, same thing. Nice. You, you just got to be brave and carry on. Like when you're walking down the street and you stumble yep. over a piece of pavement because the roots pushed it up you don't go back and rewalk that like you have to have it walked perfectly you just kind of chuckle and you keep going, going. so um that's th- really that, that's one end of it although it you can't have them way off on the hebrew they, they need to be in line so yeah. um and we're going to talk about what yeah. exactly in line means yeah. because when you're when you're facing that tension what helps to resolve a value tension is to come up with standards right when you have those two things in tension you just want them to get up there and know it's a team effort but you also want them to be accurate so we're right. going to talk about what standards allows for that really nice tension to live okay okay Tybal's waiting go for it Tybal. i'm just fast because you know you encouraged me dangerous um <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't teach children anymore. And when I did, I don't have a voice. I never taught laning. But I te- still do teach adults. And I teach some, at least one student I can think of, grew up in New York, but without the without Judaic literacy, except the kind that you would get growing up in New York. Yep. So, And she's always very interested in ethical precepts of Judaism. And I think I'm going to add to my, the list that I keep just in general, because you just elucidated two things that I didn't know about. This Gabbai class is such a joy. And one so fits that it's in Elul, because the same way communally we do alchets communally, even if we didn't individually, what you just said to me is that same communal doing this together. And the other, hmm. it's not communal, but it's That's just beautiful. the approach to the same thing about, well, I guess there's an Ella message, but more than that, that it's missing the mark and then you can get back on the path and the mistakes. And I thought that was, I just thought yes. that was wonderful. Two new things I just got out of tonight already. I love, I love that. And I think that you're, you're absolutely right that Judaism is a religion not of perfection, much like golf, I guess, which may or may not be a religion for some people. <laughs> you know, it's not one of perfection. It's one of commitment to getting ourselves better. Not even right, but better. Commitment to the bettering. And so that, you're right, that is so ripe for Elul. So I want to share with you before we talk about what those actual standards are for kind of keeping that tension alive, I want to share with you something about the tools that a Gabai uses. So um, that's going to carry us into the conversation about who should be making corrections. No, no worries. Um, so who should be making uh, corrections and from what? So when people Gabai at the Torah in most congregations of a conservative or reform bent, what they tend to use for Gabaut is this particular book called the Eighth Chaim. Now, the Eighth Chaim, what's interesting about this book, what makes it different from a full Tanakh, meaning a full Hebrew Bible, or different from simply the five books, is that it is organized in order to guide us, certainly as a congregant, through the Parsha by Parsha cycle. What the Christians have a great word in English for it, which I absolutely have um, stolen. It's called the lectionary, L-E-C-T- and then generic. the lectionary means the cycle, the, the calendrical cycle and rhythms of reading, uh, fixed rhythms of reading pieces of the biblical canon, and in their case also the Gospels, such that if you were to go to this Baptist congregation on this Sunday and that Baptist congregation on that Sunday, you would expect the same reading. That's what we have with Parshanut, right? So that's what we have in our cycle. Um and that is how this book is organized in a few different ways. One is that rather than simply having the five books of Moses, we have Parsha, not divided by chapters, but divided the way that we've divided up the portions of Torah per week. We also have Haftarah interspersed. We have these readings from the prophets, which I'm not going to talk about in this class, but perhaps I'll do another one another time. And also in this book, if you were to turn, for example, um, we're going to turn to Nitzavim for this week, which I didn't look at the page number ahead of time. But um, in this particular case, we are in Deuteronomy. Before that, Deuteronomy chapter 29, I believe, uh, verse um, verse 9. And we're on page 1165 in the Shumash. 
And one of the very first things that you see in this chumash, if you're a reader who's following along, is that you notice that in the right-hand margin of this book, which I'll hold up on the screen as well, you'll notice that you get Shani marked on the book. You get the marking only in Hebrew and not menukad, not pointillated, just the letters Shin Nun Yud written on the side to indicate that that is where the uh, second aliyah of the eight aliyot, seven plus moftir that we read that morning. There are several challenges with this book, some of which really mostly apply to the congregants who are in the seats, and some of which are really convoluted for the Gabai at the Torah. I'm going to talk about the two things that are, I think, a bit problematic for Gabayim. One of them is easily resolved, but I'm going to talk about it anyway. As you know, this congregation is one of many that sometimes, actually most of the time, utilizes the triennial cycle. That triennial cycle was fixed already about 40 years ago and then sort of refixed a few patches along the way. And many, many programs uh, that are used digitally in order to track um, Torah portions, whether that's, I think there's a program called Web Torah, there's Trope Trainer, there's Safari as Hebcal-based breakdown, there's the Lua Hashanah organized by Rabbi Miles Cohen, Rabbi Miles something Cohen, Miles L. Cohen, I don't know. Yeah, anyway, they, ha- they have these on the Bima, you know. Correct. That Luach is the one on the Bima. But it's not only the Luach of the conservative movement, it's also Web Torah and Trope Trainer, which is uh, goes beyond the movement, and also Safaria based on Hebcal will break down in this cycle as well. That means that when you go, again, the lectionary that's fixed, when you go to any conservative synagogue in the country that's reading on the triennial cycle, we're all on that same cycle and have been for decades. The problem with this book, and it really rocked me to figure this out years later, is that the book Eitz Chaim is only divided into the annual readings. And therefore, it's it's confounding both for the reader in the seat, but especially for the Gabbai of the Torah, because there are so many circumstances under which the where an aliyah begins and ends does not align with the um, with the enumeration, the confusing enumeration in the book. I love the organizers of the JPS. Some of them are congregants here. But this is a big flaw from my perspective when it comes to Gaba'ut from this. Not only that, it's not just the triennial cycle. I could also complain, I won't, but I'll just say, that it's a problem at Shabbat Mincha. Uh, it's because Shabbat Mincha takes the first full aliyah of a Shabbat morning, most of the time, divides that into three and has you read it. This is one of those groups, by the way, where it's not that. It's a little bit different in order to have the minimum number of verses. And that also is not shown by this book. There's one other thing. Remember I said there were two problems. One is the not marking in triennial cycle. The other problem for Gabaim, right, it's backing up for a second. I find it frustrating just for the Jews and the pews as well. Because the people who are sitting in the in the congregation and contending with this giant red book, they finally could get on the right page, but they can't follow along if they don't know or didn't catch the oral announcement of which, um, which, how the playbill is different this week, right? How the playbill changed. Um, but the bigger problem from a perspective of Gabaut, because the other thing is easily solved by doing what we do and many other congregations do, which is to have a printout either from the Luach or simply from um, 
from like a, a printout on an honor sheet. That's resolvable. The bigger problem in this book for Gabbaut is, uh, and yes, it is too heavy for disabled and elderly folks. I mean, is, that, that in and of itself is its own problem. But the biggest problem that I encounter with it is that there are marks for pronunciation that are missing from this book. Remember that the purpose of this book was to allow a congregant, somebody who was sitting in the congregation at a synagogue, to follow along, to follow along with the words, to know generally what the what uh, all the hour on, to learn about the meaning, and especially to learn commentary that was organized into this book. That's why it's so thick because there's so much commentary as well. What this book doesn't contain are markings that let us know when a kamatz katan is present, meaning when a kamatz has been changed in place of a holam. So a holam is the O sound, either coming in the dot to the upper left-hand corner of the letter, or that's the holam chaser, missing the vav, or there's the full one, which has the vav underneath that holam dot. Sometimes in grammar that gets swallowed up and that O sound kind of gets trapped inside a, a kamatz. Many books whose purpose are to properly read from the Torah, as in a tikkun, lekorim, a book that is fixed for those who are practicing uh, reading Torah, will indicate every one of them. That's really frustrating for someone who sees the word kol in the book marked kaf, kamatz underneath it, and lamed, and it would normally be pronounced kal, but because it's a kamatz katan, which is ironic because it is bigger when it's usually marked, kamatz katan is pronounced kol. For most people who have been gabayim for a long time, these grammatical rules are basically native, their gut sensibility, because we know the word isn't kal, we know it's kol. But it is a big issue for correction because you might second guess yourself in that moment. The other thing that this book is missing is when there are differentiations between Kri and Kativ, between the way that the book, that the Torah is written and sometimes a totally separate tradition of how we pronounce it when read. That's one way we don't always talk about that the rabbis fix our tradition. They say, well, you know, it's written this way, but we always read it this way, right? Kari, the written way, um, sorry, the called out way, and Kativ, the written way. And that's missing from this book as well. There's one last thing that's missing as well from this book, which they easily could have done, and it surprised me they didn't, but they fixed it with the Mahzor and then with the Sidor. They do not mark Shivana and Shivana. The reason why I don't care as much about that is because, and this is going to get us to the main point of the day, Pronouncing a word with or without a shva rarely causes a change in the meaning of the word and therefore rarely is problematic when it's mispronounced. So now I'm going to lay out the three major things that Gabaim are looking for in their order of importance. The number one thing that's important for a Gabai to correct is a pronunciation of a word that changes its meaning. The number two thing that we're looking for is for the trope to come off correctly at the at the major pausal points in the sentence, such that it changes the syntax of a sentence. 
it would be like missing a semicolon or a period. Otherwise, the trope is far less important that we'll talk about why we sometimes correct anyway. And the third thing is to make sure that they actually stop the aliot at the appropriate place. There's a corrective for that, but again, that's a third really critical thing. Those are the three corrective jobs of gabayim, of making sure that no pronunciation mistakes are made that change the meaning of words, to make sure that the sentences are broken up such that the meaning of the reading isn't changed, and finally, to make sure that the aliot actually get divided up as they're supposed to be divided up, whether that's a full Kriya reading day or a triennial reading day. So I'm going to talk a little bit about each, and then I'll make space for questions and comments on it. Okay, so first of all, I will I will get to you, but I'm going to go through all three before I forget what it was I was going to say. So the first thing in terms of the pronunciation that changes the meaning, I'm going to give you an example of pronunciation that doesn't change the meaning. So if you turn, um, if you look in your um, books, I found a verse. Of course, I found the verse and put it online and not in the book. So give me a second. Um, <laughs> How about the lecha or the lach? So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'll give you an example of that. Sure, verse verse of 12 on this same page. Yeah. You've where? got a yiyya lecha. Yeah. So. I'm, I'm teaching in here uh, while we, uh, before we start. Okay. Um, so the, uh, I will give you first an example um, at the end of verse uh, chapter um, 30, verse 11, and I'll show you exactly where where that meaning of the word changes. This one's one that matters, okay? Well, so this one is he? where the word is written, hey, yeah. yud, aleph. Now this, in the Torah, appears the same way sometimes that who appears. We have he and we have who. When somebody misreads he versus who, that changes the meaning of the verse because we're talking about a completely different pronoun. By contrast, a lot of these do not end in the puzzle, but by contrast, I'll give you um, mm, look back at last week's partial where there were a billion of them. Um, uh, we'll go back to in key, uh, in key tate say, sorry, in key tavo, um, we are gonna go to, um, key, why are they never here when I want them to be here? Uh, okay, before we go on to, to that one, I'm gonna show you one place that's really important. Bottom of 1150, this is chapter 28, verse 14, page 1150, okay? This word is written in this book, le'avedam. The word, however, this is one of those examples of a kamaskatan, is le'ovedam. It means to worship them, as in the other gods in this verse. The meaning of the word changes entirely if we read it Laavadam instead of Laovadam. Right? It actually kind of sounds like the father of blood or something like that. It's not the word itself. The word itself is Ovdam, and so that's one that would need to be corrected. But if I were a Gabai, I would have 
no idea um, that, that that was the case unless I knew the grammar well. If I like, have, Rabbi, mm-hmm. hi. I like the way you described it as the O trapped inside the the kamats. Yeah. Um, I'm going to start really using that with the kids um, yeah. because the 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 verb is ovade, right? To worship. Exactly. The so word there's is a, there's an O There's an O a cholam, right? The the yep. vav, um, but it's shrunk down into the kamats, so that the O. And when I teach when I teach kids how to read, it's, mm-hmm. oh, I have an idea. The dot on top is, oh, I have an exactly. idea. Ooh, I got hit in the stomach is the other one. But exactly. where the ball, they're, they're used to looking for balls. You know, the, it's, a, it's a common toy. So, exactly. oh, I have an idea is trapped inside. Trapped could inside, could yeah. I also share that I learned at the UJ, um, it's a closed, unaccented syllable. Correct. So, so here it's closed by the vet. And then it's not accented because the accent is on dom. So those with those two things, it also changes the a uh, to the o. I mean, that's right. that's why it changes. That's like, why it changes exactly. Yeah. Like whole b'nai Yisrael, it's not kal because the accent is way on the other end of the of the phrase. Exactly. And so what we want to do for either the people following along, thank you for that. Either the people following along in the pews or the gabayim is we want to create as few things for the people who are doing the corrections. And frankly, if you ask me also the people sitting in the seats, but definitely for the people making corrections, we don't want them to have to think through grammatical rules in that moment, which is exactly what this book requires me to do, right? To either rely on my gut, which isn't great, or know every grammatical rule, which is stressful. So instead, that's a place where a tikkun would matter. On the flip side, if you look at the opposite page on 1151, and you look at chapter 28, Verse 24, you see that the word is Hisham Das, which technically should be Hisham Dacha, but we get Hisham Dach not because that's a feminine ending, but because it's a pausal ending. And sometimes we're going to get Bitsay Techa, like as in verse 19 above, which will end um, in what seems like a more traditional uh, male ending. And sometimes we get a pausal, like to give emphasis, <laughs> you wind up with an extra um, ach instead of ha, because that is a way of indicating the end of a thought. Here's another one. If you turn to 1154, or if you're just looking in the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 48, otah, instead of otcha. And those mispronunciations at the Torah, I do not correct because the meaning of the word doesn't change. As nice as it would be to get it right, it's simply the difference between eretz and aretz. Those are the same word, but aretz is a pausal form of the word, meaning it's it's indicating like underline. It's like forgetting to underline a word for emphasis. And that's okay. What's not okay though is if looking at that same exact verse, not moving from it, is if I read, because Yisah is the word of the is the first word of the next sentence, and if I align those, it completely changes the meaning. It's to destroy you and lift up, and he will lift up, which completely changes the notion of everything that we're talking about. So stopping somebody at the appropriate place, only correcting them if they have a change in the meaning of the word through their pronunciation. 
right? Or through the way that they end a verse. That's what I tend to pay attention to. Well, I want to say one okay. more thing, and then and then you can jump okay. in. But also, Tybel's been waiting to say something. Oh, okay. So, sure. uh, yeah, she she politely took down her hand, but I remember oh, that she I had didn't her hand see. up. I didn't see. Um, so, uh, the last thing I want to say is that usually speaking, one of two things happened, and this is these are just recommendations. These are not rules. I want to offer two recommendations. One is. Typically speaking, we want one of the two Gaba'im to be making the loud corrections and not two at the same time. If one person is going to be a primary corrector, we want to establish that at the beginning. If one of the Gaba'im of the Torah is the person who taught the reader how to read, whether that's a kid or an adult, I always yield to that person because they know whether somebody needs to be corrected. Um, just finishing up a class, but you can catch the end of it if you like. Shul president popping in on the class. So the reason why it's so critical to um, to make sure that we divide up who's leading is that can you imagine having two people in either one of your ears correcting off a half second from each other? Stereo. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And also the odds that I'm going to know the exact contours of the trope that you use are pretty slim. Now, this class isn't going to get into this. But you should know that there are 28 variations in trope alone among Ashkenazim in North America that have been sort of captured and, and transcribed, which means that if I have somebody at, Tor- at Torah who's reading or I might have if I want to tell the person at the Torah that they've got a tibcha coming up, I want to correct them with the tibcha that they know, especially if there's a huge difference between the two, like or the difference between a high siluk and a low siluk. It can be like deathly to a reader if they continuously get corrections in the wrong trope. So these are all reasons to yield to the person who might know the, the reader better. However, another really great methodology that I learned in cantorial school is to have one person correcting words and one person correcting trope. So that if the trope is off in a confusing way, they pop in to correct the trope, or especially if they seem like if it seems like that person's a bit like thrown by where they are, even if the trope doesn't change the meaning, they can come in and either hum the trope or maybe give a hand signal. We're not going to talk about hand signals today, but they might give a hand signal, right? They can come in and that's the trope person. The other person, when they give corrections, does not sing it. Le'ovdam, they would say not le'ovdam, they would say le'ovdam if it's a matter of just the word as opposed to the trope. What's great about that for the reader is that they know that they got the trope right but the word wrong if the person corrects the word, and so they can just sing it again the same exact way but with the correct pronunciation. I actually, when I'm reading, vastly prefer this. have one person correcting trope, one person correcting words. That's not going to be the typical way, but it's a nice way also to like help people hone in on their Gabai skills. So it's worth considering. Okay, I'm going to let Tybal chime in, and then Rick, and then maybe Diane has a question or a comment, too. So we're going to wrap. Um, it's, I don't have any detailed examples, just what I thought I knew from summary, and I'll explain. That the difference in different Hebrews in diaspora, of which Yemenite is thought to be the most pure or the most traditional, even though that's not what the state of Israel makes, I'm sorry, picked, that in addition to the obvious consonant, the big difference is a lot of the vowels. So given that 
have been coming to, I mean, I'm an out-of-town member. I've been coming now over two years in the pandemic. Not just the directory, but I can see from B'nai Mitzvah names. I see, I think, lots of things that to me look Persian. I'm not so sure Yemenite. But I'm interested to know if there's ever a situation in which a diasporic difference in vowel pronunciation has implications for grammar. Yeah, that's a wonderful question. It is rare that that's the case. Usually it's the case in um, ex- sort of people who grew up in a Yiddish milieu, so where Yiddish was a primary pronunciation, and therefore letters in Hebrew are actually, like letters we think of as consonants become vowelized. It, there has been some stretching of O's and O's. However, what I say about this, Tybal, is the same thing that I say about people who have flourishes on their trope that are unfamiliar to me, which is the only thing that matters to me about a person reading is that they're internally consistent with their vowels and with their trope themselves. So I know somebody who has a Tavir. Not how I do Tavir. It's very pretty. So long as every Tavir is that while within their reading, okie dokie. And the same thing with the awe pronunciation. If that you start to think about the logic, like people will get the point if they hear a person read those three different words over the course of a few sentences that have the awe sound instead of the O sound. And they'll go, oh, that's what that is. So it's important to be internally consistent because it's not your job or mine to decide that this Zakaf Gadol gets more grandeur than the last. Okay, that's Midrash, and that's not what we do during Kriyat Torah. What we want is to convey the Masoretic tradition of the trove as internally consistent as we can. And it's beautiful if, you know, I had a student who did Egyptian tropes uh, a while back. That was um, Dr. Sarah Benoir's uh, kid uh, did that and that was amazing and I know I have my friend uh, Jenny Asher who's a cantorial student loves doing lots of different trope systems I can I'm musical enough that I can even correct her pretty consistently internally but all that matters to me is that it's uh, consistent yes Sarah Bunim Benor same one okay Rick your turn and then I'm going to wrap up so that we have time to get ready for um, no I was yeah. just uh, looking at that same verse 48 there on 1154 Yep. And you could, if somebody is is unprepared, you could easily get into trouble. So that much, so much that it's it's hard to, you know, know when to back off because you have Bach and you have Kol, you have Ol, and then you have Al. <laughs> so um, it it could be a mess. But yeah, um, I, I I would say that. Um, if if the Gabbai can talk to the reader before and just get a feel for uh, the teamwork you can put together, um, it, it goes a long way. But you, you do the best you can. I mean, um, you, you could have uh, you, know, you could be correcting so much that um, that they kind of get off track. But you, you got to do what you got to do. Um, you do. You yeah. do. And. I think that, you know, in, in summary for today and what I wanted to convey is I think that the most critical thing that you can do is set yourself up because you can control yourself to have the best tool possible for corrections, mm-hmm. to set up the right gabi to correct and to keep those three principles in mind about what we're correcting. We're correcting for for only the things that truly shift the meaning of the verse themselves. And I Definitely. think that's about... Um, that's about the right set of guiding principles to get us um, 
get us there both with correct reading and dignity, which are the things that are kind of held uh, together, and also helps the person written last word on this, and then we'll end. It helps the person at Torah trust you, too. If you're only correcting, like, if they don't know whether you're going to jump in and correct them every time they miss a combo, like merakatipa, simple something, on the page, which has nothing to do with syntax or meaning, if they know that you're going to jump in on some of them, but not all of them, if they miss them, that that creates an anxiety at the bima. And what we want to do is make them feel safe with us watching them and know what to expect with the gaba'ud at the table. So I hope that you see through this, not only does are, are we able to set that up, but that you don't have to necessarily know all that much to gabai at the Torah. You only have to read Hebrew as quickly as the person at the Torah is reading Hebrew, and you'll be helped even more so if you have a great tool like a tikkun or a printout of a tikkun in front of you. So that is correcting at the Torah. I'm going to wrap here so I can uh, get ready for an executive board meeting very shortly. But it's wonderful always to gather. And I like this hybrid. I happen to like the hybrid situation. I think a lot of people don't. But I'm enjoying it. Um, and I will hope to see you soon. But if I don't see you before then, Shana Tova. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.